Roberts fell. I think mine's going to fall over too. Shows you that good old wooden podium is far better than these, like, you know, fancy things. Um, so Galatians chapter 3, amen, yes. Galatians chapter 3. We are continuing to go through the book of Galatians during this time of, of Lent. And uh, really been an interesting. I've never preached through Galatians, and so it's been really interesting and fun to do so. And um, me and uh, David Westwood have been meeting, uh, we have Greenwood, I've been meeting every week on Thursday mornings, and we've been going over the passage, and it's just really helpful just to kind of meet with another brother and, and going through the passage together and kind of hearing what the passage has affected someone else as it's affecting you as you're preparing to preach and to teach God's words. So starting in verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as Christ crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, as you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know that, that, that know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of the faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 10. For all who rely on the work, works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. And do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the work by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the covenant coming faith would be revealed. So that the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. By now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. 
For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you have, as were baptized into Christ have been put, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its challenge and then its encouragement that it is uh, that it presents, Lord. We also are very similar to the Galatians, foolish, as Paul says, because we rely on the law, we rely on our works and not on the cross of Christ. Lord, teach us this morning to rely on your cross. Lord, we pray for those, Lord, who are sick or not with us. Lord, we pray for them that you would watch over them. Lord, we pray for our country. Lord, we pray, Lord, for our leaders, that you would give them wisdom in this time. Lord, we pray for us as the church, that you would give us wisdom to minister to our community well, to minister to the people in our church well. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the uh, I've actually never seen this movie, um, which is a shame. Maybe I should go home with all this time that I'm going to have. Uh, if you don't know that USI is going to be basically closed the rest of the semester. Um, and, uh, and things kind of come to a really, uh, just, a, just a halt in a lot of our lives. Time to watch some old movies like The Great Escape. If you don't know, uh, about this is actually based off a true event. Uh, so the movie is based off a, of a, a prison escape uh, with the Allied forces who were in a, uh, not, a, a Nazi kind of prison camp. And the story goes that this particular prison camp uh, in Germany, it actually was located in Poland, they built this camp to be almost impossible to escape from. Uh, the Stolag Loft III was the most secure facility the Nazis had ever built to secure prisoner of war. Because there was a problem that during the war, during World War II, that uh, basically prisoners of war would, would basically would be able to escape because they'd build tunnels. So what they did was they built this camp, they built their huts that they would put the prisoner in, they were uh, elevated, so they couldn't dig down to the ground. They also, it was on a sand bed so that it was harder to build tunnels because it was on this sand bed. And they also dropped microphones nine feet down so that if there was any disturbance it would be recorded or they would hear the noise and realize that there were people, there were prisoners that were building tunnels uh, to get out of the camp. So they, they, they built this very secure facility. And uh, during that, there was a man named Roger Bushill. He was the uh, he, was, he was a British pilot who um, uh, crashed and was a prisoner after the uh, Dunkirk uh, event. Uh, he was in this prison and he was with other prisoners. About 600 of them had came up with this plan to try to escape by building a tunnel. And they decided that they were going to build four different tunnels to kind of figure out how to get out of the camp. And they called these four. Uh, Actually, three tunnels, Tom, Dick, and Harry. And the reason why they didn't call it Tunnel 1 or Tunnel 2 or Tunnel 3, because if they talked about it, the Germans would hear that they are going to build a tunnel, and they would get they would actually, you know, I don't know what would happen. They would either get executed, or they would fail to escape. So they would call these, these three tunnels, Tom, Dick, and Harry. And Harry was the tunnel that they actually built that went outside the camp into a tree line that they were going to use to get out of the camp. So they started building the tunnel in 1943. It took them over a year to build the tunnel. 
the tunnel was about 30 feet deep. Like, so they had to go pretty deep because of the, the microphones and the sand. And they would build this, this, this tunnel. And what they, how they would do is they would, they would put the, dirt, the sand and the dirt and the rocks in their socks. And then when they go out and they're in the garden, they would, they would basically spill out all their, all their dirt they, were, they, were, uh, used, they had collected by building this tunnel. They used uh, milk, uh, powdered milk tins as their tools to build this tunnel. And so in, in 1944, in March 1944, and at, two, at 1030 at night, they, just, they built the tunnel and decided they were going to escape. And they could only do so many at a time because there were 600 of them and they weren't going to be able to all go out at once. So they kind of slowly made this, this trek through this tunnel to escape. And uh, basically, the, the, the Germans found out that they were escaping. And, and so 70, uh, um, um, 73 um, um, uh, prisoners were able to escape but only three actually successfully left and were able to get back into the Allied nations. Uh, uh, 70, I think 70 of them were actually caught, and 50 of them were executed for their attempt to try to escape. Uh, Hitler was so upset by, these, this, by this attempt to escape, because it's been happening several, several different times, so Hitler was very upset and wanted them all killed, but the Germans decided to only kill 50 of these um, uh, these prisoners of war. And that movie is based off that story about these uh, uh, these prisoners of war who had this great escape from this most secure facility by uh, it, that the Nazis had during the war. And I present this story because in, in, in what Paul's talking about here is this great escape. And he talks about the curse of the law, and he talks about our freedom from the law in Christ, and this great escape from the imprisonment of the law and the imprisonment of sin. And we'll get to that a little bit later. So point number one is always before your eyes. Always before your eyes. This is verses 1 through verse 9 of Galatians chapter 3. As he starts off, he says, oh, foolish Galatians. Basically, he's calling them idiots. But not like he's basically calling out for their like intellectual inability. He's calling them fools. Because they've been bewitched. They've been, uh, um, a spell has been cast over them by Satan himself. Preventing them from seeing what is obvious. What is obvious is the significance of Christ's cross. Satan has lied to them, lied to these Galatians, who had heard the gospel by Paul, preached the gospel to him, preached the gospel that Christ Jesus, his crucifixion, frees them from sin. They are redeemed by Christ. They received the Holy Spirit because of what Christ did on the cross. But now all of a sudden, they now are relying not just on Christ alone or his crucifixion alone, but they're relying on circumcision and the law. And this is a lie from Satan. This is a deception from Satan. And that's what Paul calls it. He said, you're under a spell. You're under a deception from Satan himself. And you have forgotten the obvious significance of the cross. The significance of the cross says you are weak, you are sinful, you have an inability to save yourself, and God is strong, and he saved you by his love and grace through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what the cross preaches. That's what the cross demonstrates. That's why he says here, 
In verse 1, before your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. They no longer are seeing the significance of the cross. They have fallen into this spell. They have, been, they have fallen into this deception, this bewitching. They're fascinated with the law. They're fascinated with moralism. They're fascinated with circumcision. They're fascinated with the dietary laws. They're no longer fascinated with the cross. They're no longer fascinated with the crucifixion of Christ. Salvation comes through the cross alone, right? That's the significance of the cross. Only through the cross are you saved. So why then are they fascinated with the law? Very similar to ourselves or for other Christians that you know that become fascinated with moralism or fascinated, especially for those who are millennials, fascinated with identity politics and being a part of some movement of people. You're fascinated by this. You almost can fall into a similar spell that because I align myself with this movement, that that makes me a good person. No, 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 no. You're losing the significance of the cross. The cross makes you righteous, not some moralism or some, uh, a part of some movement. Whether how significant it is or how good it is or how moral it is, if you use that as the reason for your salvation or your justification or your, or your being declared righteous by God, then you're losing the fascination with the cross. You're bewitched. You become a fool, as Paul says. He says he publicly proclaimed the crucifixion. He publicly proclaimed Jesus Christ. Basically, Paul's saying that a Publicly, a public proclamation of the significance of Christ's cross through Paul's preaching. That through his preaching of the cross alone, he's publicly proclaiming. He's almost putting on the door or putting on a billboard or putting it on some, some uh, uh, place where people can see the importance and significance of the cross. And Paul did this through his preaching. Jesus, the Son of God, was the crucified one. The cross is the central focus of the gospel. The cross is the central focus of the gospel. Too often, what do people say when you talk to them? They don't like the Bible. Why? Oh, there's too many rules of laws, right? The Old Testament, Leviticus. As if they're saying that Christianity or the Christian faith, its central focus is law. Which it isn't that, is it? The central focus of Christianity is the cross. Too much of the world does not realize that, do they? They think Christianity is based off laws and rules and guidelines. When Paul is saying here, the gospel is the cross, Christ crucified. If you look to the law as the means of your salvation, even in part, even in part, regardless of how big that part is, even in part, you have lost sight of the gospel, of the cross of Christ. Amen. God's response to our lawlessness and sin is the cross. By making him who knew no sin to be sin that we may become the righteousness of God. Nowhere but the cross is this fulfillment made true, right? Nowhere else. Not in church involvement, not in being a part of clubs or committees or any of these other type of things. These things are not where you are declared righteous by God. Only the cross. So if you lose sight of the cross, you lose sight of where your righteousness comes from. And that's what the Galatians had lost. They lost 
their fascination. They lost their focus on the cross. That's why he said, before your eyes, always before your eyes, the cross should be. So he, he talks about the gospel, and then from verses 2 and 6, he talks about the promise. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing of faith? So Paul basically presents these series of um, rhetorical questions. Let me ask you this, he says in verse 2, did you receive the Spirit? How did you receive the Spirit? By observing the law, or by trusting in the cross of Christ that I publicly proclaim to you, and you believe? He's saying, you received the Holy Spirit. You are Christians. I am not denying that. I'm not having an argument with you that you're somehow not Christians. My argument that I'm having with you is that you're adding to the cross with Judaism by these Judaizers who have bewitched you with this idea that you had to be Jewish to be a follower of Christ. If that were true, you never would have received the Holy Spirit in the first place. That's what Paul's saying. You received the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul talks about the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in word, not taught by human wisdom, that, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truth by those who are spiritual. The natural person, the person who is not a follower of Christ, who has not been redeemed by Christ, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Basically saying, you have received the Spirit. You don't need to add anything else to be saved or be redeemed. You have Christ alone. You believed in the crucifixion of Christ alone. That is how you receive the Spirit, and that's how you become a believer in Christ. The Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, is the guarantor of our salvation, right? By receiving the Holy Spirit, it guarantees our future inheritance. It seals that inheritance. It was so interesting about this whole idea, interesting going back to chapter 2 when Peter confronts Paul, is what happens in Acts chapter 10 when Cornelius receives Christ, right? He hears the gospel preached to him by Peter, right? He believes it, and what happened? He received the Holy Spirit. And it's actually so public that they begin speaking in tongues just like they did at Pentecost, and just like the believer in Samaritan, Samaria, the Gentile believer, Cornelius, who was not Jewish, and his family received Christ, believed it, were saved and redeemed by Christ, and then received the Holy Spirit. So why, based off that event, would these Gentiles, these Galatians, have to be Jewish to receive the Spirit if Cornelius, who was a Gentile, who was not a Jew and didn't become a Jew, received the Spirit by simply putting his faith in the Christ crucified? The law was made irrelevant in salvation. Circumcision was not required. Right? This, let me take us out of this particular context and put it into a context for today. There are certain Christians that would argue you have to be baptized to be saved. That is almost equal to what's going on here, that you have to do something to then be saved when Christ is the one doing and not you doing. 
baptism as a fulfillment or a completion of your salvation is wrong. And I will not use any churches in particular, but there are some church denominations that believe that you must be baptized to therefore be fully a Christian, and that is not biblical and is wrong. By hearing with faith, they heard the gospel, they heard the truth of Christ crucified for the sins of many, they trusted the gospel, Romans 10, 16, and 17. I'm going to read this, Romans 10, 16 through 17. This helps understand what Paul's saying here. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. You hear the word of God, you hear the word preached, the Galatians heard the gospel preached by Paul, and what did they do? They believed it. They trusted it. They believed it to be true. They believed that they were sinful, and that Christ's crucifixion on the cross redeemed them of their sin. They believed that, they trusted that, they were given the Holy Spirit. So hearing and trusting, hearing and believing... Believe in the message of Christ crucified. Having begun by the Spirit, now you're being complete by the flesh. So he's like saying, you believed in Christ, you heard the gospel, you believed it, you received the Holy Spirit, but now you're going to be, com be completed by the flesh? You're going to rely on the flesh to complete your salvation? To complete your sanctification, your holiness? He calls them foolish Gentiles. Who heard the gospel, believed the gospel, received the Holy Spirit, and now have adopted a new strategy, made perfect by the flesh, to improve on relying solely upon the Spirit for making them and conforming them and transforming them into the image of Christ? So they've added the law. They added an old age to the new age. They've added old wine to a new wine cloth. By adding circumcision and the dietary laws to the newness that we are in Christ. That we don't have to be Jews to be a part of God's people. That there's sanctification, becoming holy by just means of the law. You, as a follower of Christ, saved by the cross of Christ, receiver of the Holy Spirit, and made holy by the Spirit's work in you, when you hear the gospel and believe in the gospel by faith. So even when it comes to, yes, you are saved by Christ crucified, you are also made in the image of Christ through the power of the cross. The cross isn't simply to save you initially, and it's all upon you to then complete it. It's all on God and His Holy Spirit and His Son to transform you into the image of His Son. Justification, which is being declared righteous by God, not made righteous, you're not... You're declared righteous, so the justification is. You're declared innocent, even though you're guilty of sin. You're sanctified, meaning you're made holy, is by the work of, the, of God in you as you hear and believe the cross of Christ. Importance of always keeping it before your eyes. Why? Because not only does it save you and redeem you, but it also conforms you into the image of Christ. That's why you always want to keep it before your eyes and not lose it. Therefore, he says here, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works power in you do so by works of the law or by him with faith? 
God has supplied the Spirit to you and worked power among you by the hearing the gospel and believing the gospel. The law is irrelevant now. The cross is necessary. Believing in the cross justifies you and makes you more like Christ. Nothing else matters but the cross. Nothing else. And the Galatians had forgotten that. They forgot about the significance of the cross and placed other things as important. Even in part. Even in part, if we make anything equal or even somewhat important to who we are as followers of Christ, then we have lost the cross. Believing in the cross justifies you and makes you more like Christ. Nothing else matters. When we trust, we will abide. So it's not trust and obey, and there's no other way. It's when you trust in the gospel, you will obey. It's God and his Holy Spirit that conforms you to be obedient to his word. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, he says in verse 6. He gets Abraham into this. Why is Abraham so important? Because Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation, right? If you can look to the Jewish father as the reason of who you are and the significance of who you are, that's who they go to. That's they put that pin in Genesis chapter 12 and said that's when our nation, that's when our identity as Jews started is with Abraham. And the promise that God made to Abraham. Which is important that Paul uses that important verse in, in, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. That he believed in God, Abraham believed in God, and what was it? It was counted to him as righteousness. Thing is, is that circumcision by, of Abraham didn't happen until the next chapter. So he was counted righteous before he was circumcised. And these Jews, these false teachers in Galatia, were telling the Gentiles, you had to be circumcised to be a follower of Christ. And Paul goes, Abraham was counted righteous before he was circumcised. So why would you say that these Gentile believers had to be circumcised to be fully followers of Christ if Abraham, your father, wasn't declared righteous by circumcision, by faith? Even his faith in, before Isaac, he was counted as righteous. Even before he was faithful to God with Isaac. So Paul appeals to Abraham. It's not by his obedience that he was counted as righteous, but by his faith. By his belief, his trust in God. In God's word, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He trusts God's word. He trusts God's person. And he is counted as righteous. Counted means it doesn't belong to you. But it's given to you. Not by something you've done, but by someone else's gift. By someone else's grace. He was not inherently righteous. Abraham was not inherently righteous. It was a gift. And that gift was received through faith, through belief, through trust. This is also true with Christians as well. We are declared justified before God by Christ's cross when we believe and trust in God's work in Christ on the cross. We're united to Christ. In faith, he is righteous, therefore we are righteous when you are united in him through faith in the cross, through trust in the cross, through belief in the work of the cross. The response here, in verses 7 through 9, what is the response? Those of the faith who are sons of Abraham. To be a part of Abraham's family, you follow Abraham's example. 
believe just as Abraham did. Galatians did not need to be circumcised to be Abraham's children. They are already his children through faith in the cross of Christ. Believing, not faithfulness. Right? Abraham was not counted righteousness because of his faithfulness. He was counted righteousness by his faith, by his belief. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. The blessing of Abraham through faith. All the nations of the world will be blessed by faith. We enjoy the same blessings of Abraham that Abraham did, not by the law, but by believing in the promises of God, just like Abraham did, and we're blessed with adoption into Abraham's family through faith alone. Now, Satan's lie, which is obviously apparent in, in here with the Galatians, because they've fallen under this spell, the, the lie by Satan is, is you're no good, Right? You're a failure. God would never accept you by right? your past and all the things that you've done. So don't even try to practice religion. Don't try this Christian stuff. Don't try this church stuff. You'll never be able to follow their laws and their rules and their customs and traditions. You'll never do it, so just don't even try. That's the lie. The lie is, is that it's by rules, it's by following, it's by being faithful, it's by being obedient. It's all by what you do is how you receive God's love. And Paul is saying that it's a lie. It's by faith, by believing, it's by trusting. And by faith and trusting and believing in the cross, you will be obedient. The lie is that God's not trustworthy. Look to God as the means of our salvation. He is trustworthy. We can trust God. We can trust his works. Martin Luther says, The very heightened worship of God is, the, is, that, is this, that we ascribe to him truthfulness, righteousness, and whatever should be ascribed to one who is trusted. God is trustworthy. And that's why we trust him, and we trust his work, and we trust his promises, and we trust his the one who was crucified for our salvation. The second point is, is, what will you rely on to obtain favor? What will you rely on to obtain favor? In verses 10 through 14, verses 10 through 12, the, he gives you kind of two paths. How do you obtain favor from God? You know, that's kind of a question you all ask yourself. How do I find favor with my boss? How do I find favor with the girl that I like or the guy that I like? How do I find favor with my wife or my husband, for some of us? We're always trying to obtain favor from someone. And the ultimate question here is, how do you obtain favor from God? Is it from the law, or is it through faith? If you rely on the law and the blessings of God to receive his favor, the Judaizers in Galatia had convinced the Galatian church believers that, they, that to receive Abraham's blessings, you had to follow the law. However, Paul's rebuttal is reliance on the law leads to God's condemnation. You are cursed by God by obeying with by the law or following the law. For as many as of, for as many as are of works of law are under a curse. Law or moralism are cursed here. That the Bible basically says it presents all these laws, right? That's in the Old Testament. And says if you try to follow these perfectly, God is saying you're cursed because you're never going to be able to do it. You're condemned already by trying to pursue it. And you don't even have to be religious 
You can just be moral. And you basically fall in the same trap that you have to be perfect and divide perfectly to be able to receive God's favor. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. This is what Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 27, 26. These cursed, you're cursed if you don't follow the law perfectly. To avoid the curse, you must be perfect in the law. But no one is perfect in the law. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Romans 3.23. Therefore you are cursed, right? By definition, by being human, you're cursed. Because you can, you have to, you're called to be obedient to the law perfectly. You can't be perfect by the law, so you're cursed. You're condemned already. Adam and Eve failed one time to abide by the law, and they were cursed and kicked out of the garden. No one is justified by means of the law before God, he says in verse 11. Getting right with God mode, right? Getting right with God mode. You know these people who try to get right with God, right? And their, de their definition of that is to get back in church, right? Start giving money to charities. Get right with God by works. But that is the law. And that will is a curse. It's a cursed path. The path to condemnation. It's a cursed path. The righteous shall live by faith. Back in 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 4. Paul, Paul uh, he is he's, um, quoting Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Trust in difficult times leads to life. So during this time, Habakkuk had been received this vision and this prophecy that the Babylonians were going to conquer the, the nation of Judah. In, in times of difficulties... Faith is how you live. Trust in God is how you live. And life here is eternal life. Eternal life is justification. Being declared righteous by God is by faith. The one who does the commandments shall live by means of them. This is Leviticus 18.5. Eternal life is not achieved through the law. The law was not given to give life, but to condemn us. Our sinful nature makes it impossible for us to fulfill the law. Therefore, faith in God's work is required. It is necessary. It is the only path available to be declared right by God, to become a person who is holy, is to put your faith in Christ crucified. It's the only way to live, to have eternal life, to be justified, to be conformed into the image of Christ. Faith in Christ is the only option that is available to us, to have favor with God. And that's why in 13 through 14, he says, rely on Christ. The curse of the law, which we're all under, Christ redeemed us. And us here is what? Believers in Christ crucified. From the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What does that mean? He, he talks about redemption, right? And it takes us back to Exodus and the Egyptian Exodus. That we are redeemed. That we are saved. As Americans, we resonate with redemption because of the independence from Britain, right? During that time, in the late parts of the 1700s, we declared our independence from Britain. They didn't just simply give it to Americans, but they had to, they had to fight for it. They had to fight for their independence. They had to try to strive for redemption from the tyranny and the taxes of Britain. Christ became a curse for us. Christ fought the battle for us. 
the curse, he was publicly hung on a tree. A public demonstration of the results of law-breaking was being hung on a tree. Basically, what would happen is people would be executed and hung from posts to publicly show people that this is what happens to you when you break the law. Christ's crucifixion on the cross was a public demonstration of what it looks like to be an insurrectionist against the Roman Empire. And the one who was hung on a tree was a stumbling block for the Jews. Christ was a substitute. He became a, cro a, cro a curse for us. Those who trust in the cross, who took upon himself the curse, by faith in him the curse that on us is lifted. You receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. When we trust in Christ, that curse that we were under because of the law is lifted from us because he became a curse for us. Amen. The blessings of Abraham promised by God are bestowed on the nations by faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in the cross. Faith in the one who became a curse for us to redeem us from our curse and condemnation. The blessings of Abraham, the promise of the Holy Spirit, all come from faith in Christ. Point number three is welcome to yourself. Verses 15 to 24. Paul kind of continues. It's just, I mean, he's just throwing like bricks and boulders at the law and just punching holes in this understanding that they had to obey the law to be a child of God or to receive the promises of God. God gracefully gives his promise. He gave his promise. The covenant which he had been previously made by God is now is that canceled by the law of Moses. The covenant that he made with Abraham was unbreakable. The promises to Abraham and his offspring that God makes in Genesis chapter 12 uh, through 17 is unbreakable. God does not make a promise and then somehow cancels that promise or annuls that promise. If you go to a marriage vow, marriage is a covenant, right? And in those marriage vows, you're making a lifelong covenant that you're not going to cancel it. You're not going to annul it. You're going to be faithful to it. God marries Abraham and marries his offspring by promising him what he's going to provide, his blessings. And the age of this fulfillment is in Christ alone. The offspring in Christ. Faith in him, being united in him, you are a part of God's promise. And this promise that he made to Abraham and to his offspring is not canceled or repealed or supplemented because the law was given to Moses. The law does not invalidate or supersede the promises of God to Abraham and to his offspring that is fulfilled in Christ. Abraham's covenant takes precedence over the law of Moses. The law does not fulfill God's promises to Abraham. That God, the, the, what's so great about the promises to Abraham, it highlights God's saving work, his grace. The law is inferior to God's promises to Abraham. The law is temporary. God's promises to Abraham are eternal. The law does not provide the inheritance of God only by God's grace. By a means of promise can we receive the inheritance of God, not by the law. The land that Israel was promised to Abraham was not accomplished because he gave the law. He accomplished it by his promise to Abraham and by his grace. 
The new world that is going to be created by God in the future, where all of his people, they're all put their faith in Christ, that was not created by the law. It was created by the gospel. It was created by the promises of God. The promises of God to Abraham are eternal. The law is temporary. The power of the cross is what fulfills the promises to Abraham. If it were by works of the law, you could no longer call it a promise. The promise dies. John Bunyan said, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. For our better news is the gospel brings. It bids us to fly and gives us wings. The law tells you to run. It doesn't even give you the ability to run. The gospel tells you to fly and gives you his spirit. The law of Moses is inferior to the promise of Abraham. Then why was the law given? Paul says. Why was the law given? Verse 19. It was added on account of transgressions to increase sin. To make sin more present. To make us more aware of sin. Paul says that the law is literally a mirror to my heart. It exposes to the sin of my heart. He said, I didn't want to covet until I saw the law that says you shall not covet. The law is not the answer. It provides a curse, not a solution. Until the offspring should come from whom the promise was reserved, to reveal the power and the depth of human sin. This is what the law did. It revealed the power and the depth of human sin. The greatness of the redemption in Christ's cross. When you realize how much sin is in the world, you think of Israel. When the, what was their issue? It continued to break the law. They continue to break the law. The why? The law just exposes you to your sin. It does not have any power to transform hearts or lives. Only the cross and the redemption in Christ redeems us of our sin. And so for the law exposes us to our sin and the evil and the horror and that horrible nature of our sin. And then Christ's redemption in his cross is greater because of the law. Since the promise has been fulfilled with Christ, the law is put to death. The promise given by God to Abraham directly is fulfilled in Christ by the hand of God. By faith in the cross, you reveal his, this truth. The promise was reserved for those who hear and believe in the cross. The promises of Abraham are not given to those who follow the law, but who put their faith in Christ. The law exposes our true reality. But scripture has imprisoned us all under the law. By faith came, before faith came, we were held, cap, uh, uh, we were held in, uh, and imprisoned under the law. We were prisoners. The law made us prisoners. Locked us up until the coming faith is revealed. The law functions as a warden, not as a redeemer. The law functions as a prison guard not as a savior. Revealing our reality, exposing us to our crimes and sin, keeping us imprisoned, providing no relief or path to freedom, and that we were shut up to the faith that we were that was about to be revealed. We are confined under the law. So, this is so interesting about this passage. You cannot believe anything about the Bible. You could be an atheist. You could be someone who, who doesn't even think the Bible is true. And what you actually are is you're confined under the law. You're confined under it. You're imprisoned by the law. And you're ignoring the redemption 
that is available in Christ. The law is basically a custodian, a babysitter, until faith is revealed. In order that we may be justified by faith, the law and moralism is a prison to show us of our need for a Savior or a Redeemer. It made me think of The Truman Show, right? The movie The Truman Show with uh, um, Jim Carrey. The whole thing, he's really in a prison, isn't he? His whole life, he's been in this show. And there's this warden, who's basically the producer of the show, telling him, what, basically using him as a prop for this ongoing reality show. And what does he start doing? He starts to realize the prison that he lives in. And what does he want? He wants freedom from the prison, doesn't he? And when he wants freedom, they try to stop him from getting freedom. And at the end of the movie, he, you know, he vows and leaves, right? He, he, he achieved his freedom. When we start to realize that we live in a prison because of the law, we look for freedom. And the only place to find freedom is the, the one who's crucified. The last point is this, a 3D promise. A 3D promise. And kind of Paul kind of concludes all of this work, all this buildup, talking about the law and talking about the promises that are now revealed through Christ. That when faith has come, when we trust in Christ, the law has lost its function as a custodian or a warden. So the three promises of God here, this is in verses 26 to 29, that you put your faith in Christ, you become a son of God. That in Christ you are a son of God, not by the law, not by circumcision, not by being Jewish, but by, being, by putting your faith in Christ. Through faith, you become a obtainer of the eternal promises that God gave to Abraham, Gentiles, those who are not Jews, who believe are united with Christ, baptized into Christ, and have a new identity. Faith in Christ unites us, baptizes us, and gives us a new identity in Christ. We are all one in Christ. Verse 28, he said, that's the first promise. The second promise is we're all one in Christ Jesus. Regardless of your background or nationality or gender, you're equal in Christ. Doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Greek. Doesn't matter if you're free or slave. Doesn't matter if you're a man or woman. You are one in Christ. We share the same identity in Christ. The children of Abraham are those who belong to Christ, not those who are followers of the law, those who have been circumcised, or those who are Jewish. You belong to God if you put your faith in Christ. It's interesting what Paul mentions in this list: slaves and free. In the Greco-Roman world, there were so many people that were slaves. Paul is basically saying that it doesn't matter if you're the richest man in the empire or this, the poorest because you're a slave. You're equal in the eyes of Christ if you put your faith in Christ. It doesn't matter if you're men or women. Which is interesting here, right? Because if you're circumcised, that's a man-only uh, obedience to the law. Paul is saying it doesn't matter if you're man or woman. You're equal in the eyes of God because of Christ. Doesn't matter if you're young and old. Doesn't matter if you're Jews or Greeks. If you have received the law or didn't receive the law, you are equal in Christ. The third promise is the heirs of Abraham's promise in Christ. The inheritance through faith, not the law. That you receive the inheritance of being a part of Abraham's promise. That God made a promise to Abraham. Just think about that for a second. Something that happened so long ago. So long ago. It's still relevant to today. Why? Because the, the promise that God made to Abraham in the past 
is still relevant to us today because we get to be a part of God's promise to Abraham because of our faith in Christ. See how significant that is? Look at the depth of the gospel. That it makes those from different backgrounds and nationalities and, and, and equal income level one in Christ. It makes us sons of God, and it makes us a part of the family of Abraham because of Christ. That is incredible. The significance of Christ crucified and what it does. I just want to mention this at the end here just to conclude. And this is kind of a funny joke, and maybe because of the seriousness of the sermon and the text, it seemed kind of odd to do this. But I was thinking about this video that it was done on Mad TV. It was Bob Newhart. And the, you, know, you may have seen this video, but the, the girl walks into, Bob Newhart is playing a psychiatrist, right? And she walks into this room, and she, she was like recommended to come to the psychiatrist. And he said, you're only going to need five minutes with me, right? He said, you're only going to need five minutes with me. So what is your problem? And she says, well, I'm having this fear of being buried alive, being buried in a box. She said, keep on thinking about being buried in a box. And he says, he says, you're thinking, you're always thinking about being buried, buried in a box. He says, yes, I'm constantly in fear of being buried in a box. He says, stop it. Like, he just tells her to stop thinking about that. Like, there's, like, there's no reason to think that. You're not going to get buried in a box. Stop thinking this way. And I feel like Paul is saying this to the Galatians. Stop it. Like, stop relying on the law. Stop it. Stop forgetting who you are. That you've Believed in the Christ crucified. He has redeemed you. There's nothing you need to do to be accepted by God. It's what Christ has done on the cross. Stop thinking you can earn your own salvation. Stop thinking that you can make yourself more like Christ by yourself. It is through Christ alone. And faith in him alone. That redeems you and that saves you. So stop it. And I think that's like it's a very simple message. It's very simplistic. And it doesn't get into the nuance of our hearts and our sinful tendencies and our habits. I understand that. But in the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you struggle with lust, it doesn't matter if you struggle with comparing yourself to other people, it doesn't matter if you struggle with anger or struggle with frustration or struggle with anxiety or struggle with discontentment or dissatisfaction. It all comes back to the same idea that if you forget Christ crucified, if you lose that image before your eyes, you will be basically putting yourself back into the cell putting yourself back into the prison and saying, I have to overcome this. I have to do better. I have to start think, stop thinking this way and stop thinking this. And you're forgetting the significance of the Christ crucified and the cross. Be fascinated with Christ crucified. Let that work in your life. Because that's how you receive the Holy Spirit. That's how you receive the identity you have in Christ. Don't forget the cross. Don't forget it. Stop relying on yourself. Don't forget the cross of prayer. Lord, I thank you for this day. I praise you, Lord, for your goodness, for bringing us together under this certain, under this particular circumstance. Lord, thank you that, Lord, that the teaching of your word continues. The, the, the preaching of your word is going, all, is, going, is going out. You cannot stop the preaching and the teaching of your word. We praise you, Lord. I pray that you would help us to always keep the cross before our eyes. Lord, that we would never forget Christ crucified. They would not be bewitched by the law, bewitched by moralism, or bewitched by other things, Lord, but that we would be completely fascinated with the cross. And Lord, may that transform our lives. May that give us victory over sin. May that, Lord, put us at ease. May that help us to be joyful in times of sorrow. May you help us, Lord. 
to always keep the cross before our eyes.